Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, a returning guest, Jane Koston, who's moved from Vox to the New York Times since the last time she was on. This is episode 34. On sports and culture, Trump's impending return to his favorite medium, the media's focus on bad faith branding over policy, we start with Twitter and the press. We're talking on a day that this is really relevant because the uh, the Los Angeles Chargers just put out a tweet that is uh, a video of the schedule. It already has 4 million views. It's like an anime, sort of very insular football storylines. Yes. It's got yeah. <laughs> Urban Meyer as a Jaguar on the on the bar stool. I mean, it's just, it's just an incredible piece of work. And it got me thinking that this is the only thing, it, the only reason this thing can exist is really Twitter. Uh, you yes. know, it's, it's very much- it, a- is the, it is the accurate, it is the right place for extremely online energy. It should not be used in politics. <laughs> it makes you sound like an idiot when you do it in politics. But in a video that is made essentially for Twitter, and I would argue um, some of the creators were kind of talking about it because they all it was done in-house by the Chargers. Amazing. It was done essentially by people who are of sports Twitter, which is a very distinct place. We're like, all of those references made sense. Like all of them, um, like Pat McAfee, Hitting the Colts quarterbacks carousel, like right. the Urban Meyer bar thing, like all of that was like if you pay attention to sports Twitter, you got it. Yes, and now the, the anime stuff went over my head, but the sports. Yeah, all the anime that. people were very excited about it, and I was like, "That's great for you, really <laughs> excited for you." And I'm like, you know, you you don't expect that that Venn diagram to work, but you know, at this point, also because it's like it's a schedule release video. Yeah, it doesn't matter, but they know that they know that like we're going to get four million views in 12 hours on something that does not matter. And I'm like, great, great. Do it. Go ahead. So impressive um, and just perfectly executed. And it it, it combines kind of the first topic I want to talk about and the last topic, which is football, which we'll get to at the end. But I want to talk Twitter first. Um, You wrote this great piece uh, uh, called, Can We Please Get Over Our Twitter Obsession Already? And Mm -hmm. it's a great title because it actually, you know, it says our in there. And and I would say you and I um, both started using Twitter back in 2008. Um, And I think we both have very mixed feelings about Twitter. I think that there's there's a lot of like, I consider myself a bit of a masochist because I just can't quit Twitter. And 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 despite the fact that I know it's like bad for me. Um, and then there's also like this narcissism aspect of it, which I, I, it, it would be easy enough for me to say, oh, I don't like this thing. I think it's bad for what I do, but, but I'm still there every day, you know, I'm just right. scrolling. Um, but, you know, in that piece, it really gets at this great thing, which is that, you know, the media in particular politics, we mentioned sports, but, but the media in particular really puts this, this, this emphasis on what happens on Twitter mattering. And as you lay out in, in lots of great surveys, it's very unrepresentative of right. people, of the country. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, I wonder, I mean, cause I think people can kind of step back and see this on some level. Um, but what do you think, I guess, of of whether there is a real, you know, is anything going to change? I mean, is is there are we going to get to a point where we say, okay, this thing that we all enjoy is fun, but doesn't matter? Or is it going to continue into 2022, 2024, especially political cycles? I think it will continue to matter. But here, okay, let me let me let me rephrase this. When I say matter, I mean, be thought of as being important 
important by important people. And I think that's the key to Twitter um, for a lot of people. The reason why they are not they are on it is not because like it represents the political opinions of the masses. It does not. It just doesn't. We all know that the reason why it matters is because of who is on it. And it's because it's like, you know, every politician you can think of has to have a Twitter presence of some sort. And whether that is, they've really leaned into that in some points, um, like whether you're, um, you know, Elise Stefanik calling people pedophiles for, I don't know. People are weird. Um, but like, whether you lean into that or not, you kind of have to have a place here and there has to be a means by which you, you can, you can be on this platform. What I think I, what I would want to see is where people, you recognize that the best way to use Twitter and why I think sports Twitter is so effective is because sports Twitter is generally referring to things that are happening in the real world. So like, we're all watching a game. We're all watching the Bills Chiefs um, AFC divisional game and everyone's reacting to it. And we're like, holy crap, this game is wild. Yeah, like, this is awesome. We are having a great time. That is a real event that is really taking place. We are all there. We are reacting to it on this platform. What When Twitter becomes problematic is when you are talking about, you kind of wind up in this snake eating itself of Twitter talking about Twitter talking about Twitter when you're just waving tweets at people and being like answer for this tweet like I think that it so I I think because of who is on it and because of how how the people who are on it react to one another and interact with one another um I think David French made a really good point in his uh, newsletter for the dispatch where he pulled um the stats on how pieces that he wrote how people shared the pieces that he wrote for the Atlantic. And it was like majority Facebook, a lot of it email. And then like 3% Twitter, like even for journal, it doesn't do what you want it to do. And going viral doesn't really make like a viral tweet is good in and of itself, but it doesn't mean anything, which is why I think the chargers video was perfect. Like, I'm not going to be like, remember where you were when the chargers released that schedule release video that made fun of Kyler Murray. Like, uh, you know, I won't say that, but it was like a nice, fun thing. That's what Twitter is good for when it's a nice, fun thing. That's yes. So much of it is is not that. I, I remember talking to Eric Deggins um, about this this viral column he had. Um, I, I think it was. I don't remember where he wrote it. Um, it was, I think he wrote it for NBR. But um, anyway, it was about Tom Hanks and and. Uh, he said that that it got incredible. I mean, it was you know he was trending. The tweet was getting yeah. you know tens of thousands of of you know impressions, but minimal clicks. I think there was like a couple hundred people actually clicked yeah. the link. I mean, it's just you know you're not driving traffic. People are not you're not there for the for the nuanced conversation. Um, but I also like we're currently again in the moment where Steve Schmidt, former um, uh, Lincoln Project member, mm-hmm. former McCain staff or other sort of GOP flack, is in this like seven day bender right now, just just going after everybody. And I, I don't follow him because it's like it's it's a little bit excessive. But there is something where it it is this window into the psyche of of semi important people. I mean, important in the scheme of things that they have relevance and impact. And so, you know, I, I do wonder if like the fact that people that the media is there to document this this mm-hmm. occurrence is is actually providing some service as well and just showing that this is kind of what people are in this setting. Right. I mean mm-hmm. It's complicated because I think also Twitter is a means by which people are far more confessional and they're also more 
they have a tendency to weaponize their confessions. So not only are people telling you something, like not only is Steve Schmidt telling you all about John McCain's alleged affair, but he is doing this for a, a particular purpose. He has a me. This is not just he's not just telling us this because it's fun. It's not fun. No. It's weird. I'm very it's weird. Um, but I think that 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 is something that, I, you know, any journalist would be like, it would be like if you were I've always said that journalism is a great job for people who are incredibly nosy. And I am incredibly nosy. Yeah, like too. if I am at a restaurant and like the table next to us, something happened, like something goes on with them. I'm like, so <laughs> so so what it is, because I mean, essentially what what is journalism? But asking people like, hey, something happened to you. Do you mind telling me all it's about it? I think that yeah. was one of, you know, when uh, one of the first things I did when I was at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as um, I had a fellowship was I did obituaries, which is oh, wow. really hard because you're doing that, but you're doing that at the worst time of someone's life. Yeah. And I think like in some ways, I think that all journalists should, one, have to write obituaries at some point and have to cover high school sports. Because you'll never encounter people as mean as people who are mad at you about high school sports. Not one person. But I think like it is useful to be on Twitter. It's also if you recognize that this is like you are not talking to the world. This is not representative of the world. You are talking to a very specific group of people. It's like a group chat. It just happens to have several million people. But you're not even interacting with most of them. I think that that's something... Um, I had a friend who was just talking about how like, oh, you know, his friend just joined Twitter and she was like, yeah, she was really into po poetry Twitter. And I was like, poetry Twitter. What are they doing oh, over at poetry Twitter? <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, it's probably ridiculous, but like, I think, it, you know, we, we have such a segmented population in so many respects as as we, we would. And Twitter is representative of that. So I think if, if you know what it is and you know what you're going into and you know that you know, if you try to explain anything that happens on Twitter to your grandma, it's not going to work. No. She thinks that you're insane. Um, and I am. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm always struck by how sometimes like people talk about Twitter in this way where I'm like, they, they sound like they're talking about heroin where they're just like, I just can't stay away or something. I'm like, <laughs> no, I actually really like Twitter when it's good. That's the problem. Yeah. I have like, you know, you're scrolling and I, I really, I, I don't, you know, I don't enjoy the doom scrolling because that just makes me anxious. And I'm anxious enough as it is. Like right. there are these people on Twitter who have this, who have like our self-appointed Cassandra's, and they seem to gain a lot of popularity by being like, here's what's going to happen. Everyone's going to die. And here I'll tell you how in a viral thread about how, like, everything's going to be made illegal and COVID's going to kill everybody. And like they do really well because apparently people are into that and they think that being super negative is akin to being truthful. Yeah. But like a lot of times when I'm on Twitter and I can't look away, it's because like NBA Twitter is blowing up or like something happened and you want to see like how people reacted to something or I'm watching a Michigan game and something cool happened. And I want to like, be like, Oh, did somebody catch that? Like, I want to rewatch that play. That's awesome. Like it can't, it's fun. Yeah. Like, we can admit that like this thing is addictive in a fun way. It's not addictive in a, like, if we don't have it, we go into withdrawal and lose our minds way. What happens if Elon Musk buys Twitter and lets Donald Trump back on the platform? There are definitely times where I've, 
you know, I, I, I force myself to not look at Twitter for, I don't know, 16 hours or something. And then I look yeah. at it and I'm like, okay, there are things happening that I don't understand. Like, am I going to spend some time and try to figure out what everyone's talking right. about? Or am I going to just avoid it? And unusually I try to figure it out. Um, okay. Th- this leads us to, to really the, the impetus for your piece, which was Elon Musk, uh, most likely buying Twitter at some point, uh, mm-hmm. around Maybe. October. Yeah. Perhaps. We'll see, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's, he's, you know, Elon musking his way around the issue, but you know, at least as of right now, it seems that's where it's mm-hmm. going. Um, and you know, it, I think unsurprisingly he was asked about whether he would allow Donald Trump back on the platform, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. maybe the most famous banned person from Twitter. Um, and he said he would, you know, he said the lifetime ban would end. Um, obviously, you know, maybe there'd be sus- more suspensions down the road, but I'm thinking that, you know, newsroom executives, media executives would, probably be privately cheering that. Um, I think Donald Trump on Twitter helps the business. I think maybe staffers at, in the media newsrooms might have a different feeling. But what do you think about Trump back on Twitter as a possibility? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of multiple opinions on this as I am on, on many things. One, I think that it will make my personal experience of Twitter more annoying because so much like I remember I muted Trump Years ago, I think I muted Trump in like 2017, because one, if he said something that would matter, I would hear about it some other way. But when he's just like screaming at people because he used the, you know, he used Twitter the way a lot of people do it as like a means by which of screaming his id out at people. And it's just like, I just don't need that. And that's nice. Like, I think one thing that Elon Musk seems to recognize is that like if you give people the means by which to make Twitter a highly curated experience, highly curated, which I think is part of the issue here. Um, it like, it can be a better place while allowing more different kinds of people to be on it. The challenge is that some people's definition of highly curated means that like, no, 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 I can yell at you, but you can't yell at me. And I always say, I'm like, I'll just mute all of you. It's beautiful. I'll never know if you're yelling at me. I have to say mute, by the way. Mute is so much better than block. You know, oh, because then it, they, know. they get yeah. they get so excited when I you know. block them. But then I'm like, no, no, I just there are people who have been yelling at me for years. And like there are random people who are like convinced that I'm like, I don't know. The one random thing is that people are deeply convinced to this day that I'm like a rock ribbed Republican for yeah. whatever reason. And there are people who've been yelling at me about it for years, but I muted them. So then they were like, I'm going to DM her and yell at her there. And I'm like, I'll just ignore you. Um, That's good. I think what, what back to Trump being on Twitter, I think that if he were to be back on Twitter, the challenge is it's not him. It's the way that people react to him Yeah. by it's the same way where, um, like media matters for America or something. will reshare clips of Tucker Carlson's show. And I'm like, you know, that like, that's why he's doing this. Like if you just didn't, I mean, I don't believe that if you just don't talk about it, it'll, you don't have to worry about it. Like I think, but I think that part of this is just like, when you just reshare things with how bad is this? That's something that we, you know, when I was doing a lot of work on like white nationalism and things like that, there's always like, don't, you know, it's the same reason why you don't, you, news outlets have stopped sharing the names of people who commit mass shootings or like you don't share their manifesto just like, here you go. Um, It's like you, there needs to be some care to it. And I obviously Trump is a very different entity, but I think that so much of him is like 
the the yawning void of attention that emerges around him where it, it it's not even about anything but it's like he says something then there's like a reaction to the thing he said then you react to the reaction and then you get but somehow you get all the way back to trump it kind of reminds me of like i mean i know we'll, we'll talk about this um later i'm sure but kind of the espn effect yeah. where um Kevin Durant says something. Then Sneva Day Smith responds to Kevin Durant saying something. Then Kevin Durant on Twitter responds to Stephen A. Smith saying something. And I'm like, we got a full week of content. Yeah, um, it's a soap opera. I think the other thing, though, is that I think that there are people and it's evenly divided between the people who love him the most and the people who hate him the most who are convinced that Twitter is how Donald Trump won the 2016 election. And I think to a certain extent, I think Trump believes that's how he won the 2016 election, which is why in 2020 he was leaning into extremely online subject areas on the stump, like going to Iowa and being like, have you heard about Bruce or we got to get rid of Section 230? And I'm like, no one knows what you're talking about, bro. Um, So, like, one, I think it would be actually fine if he were back on. For me, you know, it will be annoying because I will see like, look at this latest tweet. And it'll just be that thing when you have somebody muted and somebody shares it, it you just can't see it. And I'm like, well, I just don't care. There come the um, tweets, yeah. I think it's going to be. I think it will encourage, especially because there are lots of people on Twitter who have nothing to do with politics whatsoever. And I think that's the thing that I wonder if Elon Musk understands is that there are people whose use of Twitter One is not based in the United States, which is something when he talks about like, oh, we'll just follow the speech laws of each individual country. I'm like, hey, you're going to have a great time in the United Arab Emirates. Um, But like also that most people do not engage on Twitter the way that Elon Musk does or the way that any number of people do. Like it's a you know, it would be like thinking that everybody is on Facebook just to share like anti-Joe Biden memes. Like, like, no, some people aren't. Like, I'm in a Facebook group of people who I weightlift with or something like that. Like, these platforms are used in so many different ways. And I think it's it's worth giving people as many options to use them and then just being like, okay, try not to break anything. Right. right um, yeah. But well, I think that the role that Trump plays on Twitter or the role that Twitter has played in Trump and in his rise to the presidency has been dramatically overstated by the people who are most afraid of that and the people who want it the most. Yeah, no, I think, you know, and and honestly, I I would say the same about the the media coverage. I've always been one that says, oh, you know, yes, he got softer primary coverage from the CNNs and the morning Joes of the world. But I I don't think that's what got him. I don't think that's what won him the presidency. I just don't, I don't think people said, oh, Joe Scarborough is nice to Donald Trump. So now I can vote for him. And it doesn't really have that cognitive, uh, you know, the, the line is not there, but it actually, though, brings up a different point about Trump and the media because he uh, you uh, wrote or wrote about but also did a podcast about uh, J.D. Vance and um, kind of the what I was, you know, what's been called the new right um, J.D. Vance endorsed by Trump um, and you know, you interviewed him back in 2016. He had published Hillbilly Allergy. Mm-hmm. He's kind of famous, you know, and I, I think that, that, you know, he's famous and Trump endorsed him and Dr. Oz is famous and Trump endorsed him. And, you know, there's, there's maybe something to the, to the fact that you like famous people. Um, but, but I, I wonder if you, as you look at kind of the coverage of Vance and the coverage of, you know, even just the Pennsylvania primary, 
the Trump factor in all of these, what's missing, do you think, in terms of the general coverage of how people are, are looking at these these races? Um, I think that there is. Um, hmm. Well, I think it's complicated because I, I did we did an episode about Vance and I kept asking, like, so what did you want to do for Ohio? Like he would be representing my parents and my sister and my aunt and any number of assorted relatives. And like, so what does he want to do? Like you read that um, Vanity Fair piece and he's like, oh, we must fire all the bureaucrats because we're in late stage capitalism. And I'm like, OK, bro. But like, what are you going to do for Ohio? What does any of this mean? And I think that that's the thing. We, we, I think that the Republican Party has gotten to this weird point where they firmly believe, and I, I wrote about this years ago, they firmly, and you see this with kind of the California Republicans, um, the Claremont Institute and any host, they, they believe that because they have no political power that they think counts and no cultural power, well, then they can just like be the party of ideas, just coming up with all these thoughts and stuff. And that's not true. They have significant political power and I would argue significant cultural power as well. And yet you still see people running for Congress as a messaging vehicle, but with no plan to do anything, because I think in one way they would say, and I, I would in some ways agree that Congress is a terrible place to try and get anything done. Right. But just that using your run for the Senate as a messaging vehicle, especially a messaging vehicle where the inherent message is nothing can ever get better. These people all hate you. Everyone hates you. Only I care about you and I can't even do anything again for you unless you give me more power. Like what's J.D. Vance's plan for Ohio? Not like the wall or making statements on foreign policy, which, you know, if we let Congress play more of a role in foreign policy and a declaration of war, we could go back to the way things were right. supposed to be. But like. What's he going to like? What What are some Hamilton County focused issues that he would like to talk about? You know, let's let's talk about um, the growth of research facilities around Ohio State. Is that bad or is it good? Is it going to is that impede on his fight against big tech? Does he think big tech is bad? But then when they relocate to Ohio, then they are good. Like, what's the plan here? What are you going to do? Is there a doing? And I, I think in some ways there's a concern from some people that like, if you say you want to do something, then at some point somebody's going to be like, why didn't you do the thing? You'll have a Foxconn incident. So it's way better to just be like, but our opposition is evil and stupid, but also evil, but also stupid. And really focused on how like, you know, the doing of anything is not the point when it should be. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's right. It's the ideas aspect of it. And I, and I wonder, you know, I, I think for me, it may disagree with this. I think it connects a little bit to what we've seen, especially in certain instances like culture war instances. And there's like this bad faith effort, I would say on both sides. I, I look at something like um, the prevalence in the media, but what started, you know, on the left is like the don't say gay bill in Florida. And, you know, we can debate the bill. We can talk mm -hmm. about what's in the bill. I think it's probably, you know, it was, you know, a very vaguely worded bill by design, but, you know, this idea that, that, you know, the quote, don't say gay, it just becomes the talking point within the media. And then it becomes the, the, like that becomes what we're, what we're arguing about rather than mm -hmm. the substance of it. And, and I, I wonder that like this branding side of it and the media's, you know, again, I, I think on both sides, whether you're talking about Fox or so or or the left, where the branding becomes the story rather than the actual policy. Well, I think that there's a lot of um, there's a sense where this 
so many stories get taken away from what they're actually about to like the media response at the story, which I think is interesting because the, the story in with regard to that law in Florida is the law in Florida. It is not that the media was so very mean to Ron DeSantis about being mean about his bill. Like it becomes this means by which people can. And you saw this like and you see this sometimes with conservatives or with liberals where it's like when they've already like when something happens, it's like you have to deflect to where you're the victim again, where it's like, you know, we like you saw right after the row purported decision leaked which would be the biggest victory for anti-abortion conservatives, anti-abortion people in 50 years. And somehow it deflected to why was the New York Times mean about it? Um, and I am I, I think that it, it's interesting how that becomes because the, the ideal is to somehow purport to be both a strong and principled entity, but also a victim of forces far beyond your own understanding. And so I think that these, these stories become about the media. It becomes about how the media has told the story when it shouldn't, it's about the thing we get, I, you know, I talk sometimes on, on Twitter about like, there's the thing we're arguing about and then there's the thing adjacent to the thing. Like we don't want to talk about abortion. So we're going to talk about like, the leak was wrong. We're all very upset about it. And it's like, no, we should probably talk about the thing or we should talk about this bill in Florida or we should talk about, you know, any number of actual ideas and conceits. Yeah. But, but don't, don't we talk about the media debate about it. Yeah. But like it, it feels like it's by design because to debate the bill in Florida, for example, like it's it's more nuanced than than saying, you know, I'm against the don't say gay bill. Like that seems like, okay, you know, I think reasonable people can, can do that, but, but by, you know, because it's framed in that way, it makes the, the adjacent thing an easier, more comfortable thing to, to debate and yell about than the actual thing. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's easier. It's just easier to do. It's easier. And you know, it's easier to do. It's easier to fundraise from it's, it's easier to do. It just is coming up. What makes podcasts and newsletters such valuable mediums in 2022? That's next. But first, when the Washington Post hired Taylor Lorenz away from the New York Times, they gave her a columnist title rather than a reporter title, which to me felt intentional. Lorenz breaks news sometimes, but so do the best columnists. A columnist is putting their opinions into their stories of reporters not supposed to. That distinction didn't last long. Recently, Taylor Lorenz published a lengthy expose on the woman who runs the Libs of TikTok Twitter account, not as a column, but as a report. Libs of TikTok has amassed hundreds of thousands of followers, now millions, and a lot of fame in the process. It's fair to call it an expose because Lorenz, in an email to Governor Ron DeSantis' press secretary, said she would be, quote, exposing the person behind the account. The article is hyperbolic and biased from the start. A Media Matters representative is the first person quoted. It also briefly linked to a real estate license of the woman behind the account, which revealed her address, a fact that Lorenz recently lied about when she talked to Brian Stelter on CNN, when she said, we absolutely did not reveal personal information. I guess what she meant is on purpose. Though Lorenz defenders embarrassed themselves, reporters comparing her tactics to Woodward and Bernstein during Watergate, 
The Washington Post editor Cameron Barr blubbering through an effusive statement on her behalf that also lied about the temporary doxing. In other words, classic Taylor Lorenz reality TV journalism. But that's not the full story. The idea that the libs of TikTok founder has a right to anonymity would be a little more compelling if she didn't make semi-frequent media appearances going back to December of last year. In her first appearance, she explicitly states that our goal is to get teachers fired and suspended. She does this by tagging their schools and celebrates when they lose their jobs. The founder of this account wants power, and she got it. But with power comes attention. Lorenz also correctly points out that the account does not just simply shine a light on, quote, libs and their crazy TikTok rantings. It's evolved quite a bit from that original, more objective mission. Now it tweets political messages that are, frankly, quite extreme. Any teacher who comes out to their students should be fired on the spot, said one now-deleted tweet highlighted by Lorenz and me at the time. The teacher in the video told the story about not wanting to talk about his sexuality with his students, but being goaded into it after much prodding, had a brief moment of positivity with his students, and then went back to teaching. These are the supposed groomers we need to expose. Regardless, even if you agree with everything libs of TikTok tweets, we can agree that having the spotlight turned on you after you spend your day turning a spotlight on little notice TikTok videos is only fair. Moaning about coverage of your activism, which has been wildly successful, something a snowflake does. It's another battle in the culture war that requires picking a side, or perhaps with bad faith actors on both sides, pick neither. We're coming back with Jane in just a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. First is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Jane Coaston. You're involved in two... Um, I would say emerging platforms have been around for a little bit, but you know, podcasts and newsletters mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as ways to connect with people, they, they feel much more um, personal kind of intimate than say, you know, a blog post or, you know, even a, a video or a TV show. And so I want, you know, the other thing about them is they're, they're very hard to like clip like your media matters example and, or, or, you know, from the other side, if there's like a, here's a little 12 second soundbite that takes us out of context, it, there's much, yeah. it's much harder to, to do that, I think, in those mediums. So how have you found those as places to connect with audience, to reach people, to have nuanced conversations? I think it's, it's, it's interesting how, I, I, I really like podcasting as a means of having conversations with people and having conversations about important issues. Um, I think that people are, especially because I am having a conversation, I'm performing the art of having a conversation generally while being listened to by someone who is not paying that much attention. I am aware that when anyone listens, I, when I listen to podcasts, I'm going for a walk or I'm like doing the dishes or something like that. Yeah. Passive experience. Yeah. Too. And so I think that that's an interesting way to listen to something because you are, because you are less focused in some ways, I think you are more focused on how does the argument sound, how you're more receptive to letting someone build up into an argument, letting someone be heard on an argument, having the back and forth experience. And I think that that can work really well for helping people to get a handle on what you're trying to say, what you want to say, the flaws in what you are saying, the lack of flaws in what you are saying. And I think the same thing, newsletters, I also think 
I mean, it's, you know, at a certain point, people have been sharing essays for a million years. Um, there's a recent Ken Burns documentary series. Um, I love Ken Burns. I am I am a normie dad. I love <laughs> Ken Burns. I cannot get enough. But he's done on Benjamin Franklin and talking about Benjamin Franklin's newspaper. And half of it was like essays that he was writing under a pseudonym of an old woman. But just like people like writing essays, and I really do too. Yeah. And I think that that's something, and when you can do it for a newsletter where not everything needs to have the gravitas of like, I am writing this in the, like this big, sw like big sweeping statements. Like sometimes I'm writing about how like the NFL draft is weird. And sometimes I'm writing about abortion. And then sometimes I'm writing about how, um, Thinking about college basketball made me think about elites a lot because I've, I've always been struck by how our biggest desire is to somehow be an elite, but not have anyone think you are. Um, and like, I really Backlash. like that form. I, yeah, I really like that format of essentially having kind of a, a, a means by which I can just think through ideas in a shorter format written out where it feels as if. I am talking to an audience that one has already signed up. Like they signed up for my newsletter. I'm not just springing this on them. And you know, it's not like a Spanish inquisition or something. Like I, I really like how that, I really like how that works for me. And I'm sure that that's how a lot of people who have newsletters and such feel too. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, um, yeah, I think that like the sweet spot right now is like you're, you're elite, but you're like against the elite. Right. So it's like, you're, you're a class trader, but you have to get to that point. That's like, the, that's my, that's the goal. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up, but first, Coaston's focus at the New York Times on sports as a key component of our cultural conversation. Last thing before we get to kind of the lightning round, yeah. uh, you've carved out this really interesting beat. You mentioned a couple of the, the stories you've, you've written in, in the newsletter, but as like sports as culture. Um, mm -hmm. And you talked about golf, which uh, I'm a big golf fan, although, you know, you've got some complicated feelings about golf. Um, uh, I, I am now the number of people since I wrote that who have invited me to go golfing or have <laughs> talked to me about golf. Uh, it's very high. Yeah. So, and I did a, I did a golf podcast. Um, I know, you know it's, people, I'm not people a big tried to make me see, make golf seem fun. Like golf's fun. I got it. It's my favorite sport to watch currently, um, which is definitely very normie dad of me. Um, okay. So, but you've also written like great things about, about football, kind of the moral compromises of being a football fan today. Um, and then I, I thought really good one also in the context of like, you know, there's horrible things happening in the world, but sports is not frivolous. It's, it can be a great distraction also. So, so what do you think of this kind of, you know, this beat here, sports culture, and, and really, I think putting a lot more value on it than maybe, you know, your typical, I don't, I almost said elite, uh, New York times writer might, might, might say about it. I think that sports are really important means by which we learn about each other and ourselves. And I think that about that with any means by which we play as humans. Um, it's the same thing about music. Um, but uh, as I learned when I was at MTV, I'm a god awful music writer. I can't do it. it, it there, I, I just am like, I like either I like it or I don't. I can't write about it. It's just it's not a skill I have. Um, but I think that sports have the means by which we can introduce new concepts to people or rethink concepts, especially because you are seeing someone existing on a different plane than a typical one. And I'll give you an example. When you had the moments of like desegregation in college football, that's not happening because someone like Bear Bryant was like, 
segregation is a moral wrong. Bear Bryant's like, I would like to win as many football games as physically possible. Like that sounds good to me. And I think that you see people who are where you have athletes who are brilliant athletes, but they are also very different from the people who watch them. And you see people who are forced to rethink stereotypes that they have. And it's funny because sometimes I'm like, yeah, I wish that you would have rethought your views on immigrants or LGBT people before your favorite athlete was X or Y. But like, you know, sometimes the mountain has to go to Muhammad, I guess. Um, And I think that that can be it's so interesting to me how sports and the ways in which we watch sports, the ways in which we engage in sports, the way in which we think about sports, they tell us a lot about how we think about ourselves, how we engage with one another. Um, like I'm still, I'm still fascinated that we are still in the kind of the discourse about whether or not um, athletes should be role models. Like I know this has been a conversation that's been going on for like 30 years, but like yeah, Charles Barkley, we're still, we're still in this. And I am, I think that that's fascinating to think about like when we are trying to make sports intersect with all of these other ideas in our lives, we wind up in this really complicated place, but I find that fascinating. Yeah, I do too. Uh, all right. Last thing, Jane, uh, six questions, 60 seconds Yep. is your favorite place in the world. Um, Northern New Zealand on the beach. Nice. What's one lesson you've learned from marriage that you think could help someone else? Uh, um, people do things differently than you. It sounds silly. And yet you will learn something about your partner every day where you're just like, I had no idea other that humans did that, but they do. And you shouldn't just learn to live with it. I like it. Uh, what's one guilty pleasure or vice? Um, I am a sucker for like kind of dumb action movies, action adjacent movies. And I don't mean like, like I talk a lot about the raid recently. I love that movie, but like I recently just rewatched the Robert Downey Jr. uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. And I was like, this movie is dumb and great. I'll watch the second one now. (laughs) And like, I don't know. That was probably even dumber. (laughs) It's incredibly stupid, but I, I really enjoyed it. Nice. Who is one person saved in your phone contacts that may surprise people? Um, hmm. Well, hmm. I don't know. I actually, I, I don't, I actually don't know. I'm trying to, th- I, I don't know. This is also because I, in general, um, hmm. Well, well, what's your, what's, what's the, it's your, because you're in general, what? <laughs> Well, in general, I try to avoid people calling me on the phone. There you go. That's a good, um, it's fine. Yeah. In, in general, I try and I'm trying to think like there are, are probably people who are in my phone who don't know that I'm there in my phone. So, but yeah, that. yeah, would probably be best. <laughs> who is a person who consistently makes you laugh? <sighs> my spouse and John Mulaney. Nice. All right. Last thing. What is the last great piece of content you consumed? Um, I just read, so there's a new Hulu. Um, I love true crime. It is a, I, I'm not even guilty about it anymore. I'm really into it, Me too. but there is, um, 
There is a new uh, true crime film called about um, starring Jessica Biel um, about the it's called Candy and it's about the murder of Betty Gore and this woman who was murdered with an axe by another woman who was having an affair with her husband. Um, And it's based on actually the source of pretty much all of the best writing over the last 30 years, I would say Texas Monthly. Um, I am a giant Texas Monthly and Texas Tribune fan. And so I was like, oh, this is based on a true story. And I literally I was like, wait, you know, when you're like you turn on the water to take a shower and you're waiting for it to heat up for a second. I stood there for so long that I had to give up on taking a shower. I read the whole I read part one and part two just standing in my bathroom on my phone. Oh, so you read the original. Oh, uh, yeah, I read the original. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a love and death in Silicon Prairie. It's uh, it's exceptionally good. It's from 1984. Um, it's online and it's it's really like good true crime writing is hard to do, but when it's good, it is A plus. All right, a deep cut there. I like it. Jane, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much to Jane Coaston. She's got a great podcast herself, The Argument. Go subscribe to that. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me to build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music and download and follow. That's what they say now. Follow this show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.